Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. The Book of Job is the one book of the Bible that can make a Christian shrivel. When a skeptic brings up a question about Job, the average Christian usually sidesteps the issue or throws out an answer that is not satisfying. Because on the surface, the Book of Job sounds terrible. It looks as though as if God tortures his most faithful servant on earth just to win a bet with Satan. How can we claim God is loving after something like that? However, that is just a surface understanding, and I want to show this is not the case. I personally used to be troubled by Job and avoided reading it altogether. But a few years ago, I became convicted about this. So I read it through and began to truly think about it. What I found was is that this surface understanding was very false. What is actually going on is a deep message of love and a warning to Christians, or those who claim to follow God. I will not touch on the debate of whether Job is a work of fiction or literal history. Some scholars have argued it was composed as an ancient work of fiction and not literal history, sort of akin to Jesus' parables, meaning it is a story for teaching purposes, but not a literal historical occurrence. That is an interesting debate, but beside the point. If we focus on that, we miss the rich and deep theological teachings Job is trying to give us. What I want to show are three things. First, although Job was a good moral person, he had a warped view of God, which distanced him from God. Second, God had a good reason to allow what happened to Job. And finally, this book is not written to lost sinners, but is directly written to those who claim to follow God. It has a deep and important message for Christians today. First point, Job had a warped view of God. The first verse opens, describing the moral character of Job. It says in verse 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now the skeptic will say, See, he faithfully followed God. God had no reason to hand him over to Satan. But what the Christian should look at this description and say, So what? So what? Good works do not mean a person is following God. Doesn't Jesus and Paul teach that good works won't save us? You can live a good life and still completely miss the point of the gospel? Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21-23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just being a good person and doing good works doesn't mean someone is doing the will of God as Jesus says. And it would be helpful to compare this verse to another passage about a different righteous man in Genesis named Noah. In Genesis 6-9, we read, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So if we compare these two verses, we see they are both blameless good men, but only one walked with God. The Bible teaches that being a good person is not enough, because Romans 3-23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't earn God's salvation and blessings by works. Salvation is a gift by grace. It is about walking with God. Now, I'm not saying what Job was doing was bad. 
he was obviously doing good things. But we need to look past the action and look at the motive. And this subtle yet important fact is missing from the moral description of Job. Okay, so what the skeptic can say, this is just one verse. Well, let's keep reading. I want to look at a couple verses which individually may not mean much on their own, but together they can make a cumulative case. We get through the description of Job's wealth, and we are told in verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is another subtle yet important fact. Job is not relying on the relationship he has walking with God, but relying on the works and sacrifices he is offering up. The entire mindset implied is, what if my children die and they don't have all their sins paid for? God surely won't be appeased by that. I better make sure I do enough sacrifices so they can get into heaven. See, it's all about works. Job wants to follow God, but he thinks it's all about what he does to earn God's grace and blessings. It's not about walking with God like Abraham or Noah did. It is about Job trying to appease God with works and sacrifices, which as Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 7, among other places, is missing the point. You can't buy your way into heaven. It's all given by grace. This is something Abraham understood. In Genesis 15, Abraham knew nothing of God, but he believed in him. And Paul tells us in Romans 4 that God counted him righteous because of his faith, not because of his works. But Job is not believing by faith. He is trying to earn it. Let's move on. We'll come back to the conversation between Satan and God in the second part. For now, let's look at how Job reacts when he loses everything. At the end of chapter 1, Job loses everything in a single day, his wealth and his family. Job's reaction starts in verse 20. Then Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, this seems like a good moral thing to say, and many commentators have noted that. But for me, it seems a bit odd. By God's grace, I have never lost everything in a single day. But I can honestly say that if I did, this is not how I would react. My line of thought would be more like Jesus and what he yelled on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'd be yelling, God, why are you letting this happen? My reaction would be more like King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, as a cry out to God for deliverance. My reaction would be more like Jeremiah's in the Book of Lamentations, as a cry out to God of the horror that happened and question what is going on. It would be very hard for me to say, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, it would be very hard for me not to talk to God and only talk about Him. In fact, throughout Scripture, when something bad happened, the man or woman of God cries out to God for help. They don't usually talk about God like Job does here. So the interesting thing we need to note is Job doesn't address God. He talks of God. He doesn't say to God, you gave and you take away, but I'll continue to bless your name. If he walks with God, why not talk to him? So what does this mean? There is a misguided belief in America called the prosperity gospel. Those who hold to it believe they can claim whatever they want by faith. If they want a new car, then they just say, I claim a new sports car in the name of Jesus. And they believe God is getting them the new car. I wish I was making this up, but it is sadly true. It doesn't appear that they walk with God. They try to use God to get the things they want. 
Job's line of thought seems to be similar to that, that as long as I bless God, he will have to hear me and reward me by fixing this. It's not about crying to God for help, but crying out so God will hear him and see how good he is being and follow through and reward that. This implies little evidence of a personal walk or relationship with God. It seems to be all about trying to appease God so he will fix the situation. Let's keep going. We're looking at pieces in the text to get a bigger picture of who Job was. Things get more interesting in chapter 2. Satan comes back and this time causes Job to be covered with painful sores. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now look at that last part in verse 10. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That is interesting because in chapter 1, after the turmoil hits, it says, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. We see it goes from Job not charging God to Job not sinning with his lips. Why the change? Why not just repeat the same phrase that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong? Because something different has happened in Job, and we see that come out in chapter 3. Now, Job's friends show up and they watch him suffer for seven days, until finally Job says in chapter 3, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it, and so on and so on. Job goes on for the rest of the chapter wishing for death, wishing he had never been born. He speaks as if he loves death over life, and there is more speaking about God and not speaking to God yet. It's as if Job is writing a love letter to death. But see, that is interesting because Proverbs 8.36 says, in speaking about the wisdom of God, All who hate me love death. The Bible teaches God is life, and to reject life and want death is to reject God. So let's go back to this comparison between these two verses. Job at first will not sin or charge God, but later it says Job will not charge God with his lips. Or in other words, he will not openly speak what he feels in his heart towards God. At this point in chapter 2, he has hate towards God, and it is obvious in his wish for death, because all who hate God, who is life, love death. But Job won't outright say it. Why? If that is what he feels, then why not admit it? If Job walked with God, why isn't he just being honest with him like Hezekiah, Jeremiah, or Christ did? Why is he hiding what he feels? Because Job still thinks his entire good fortune was built on appeasing God. God for Job was a giant genie in the sky or a divine vending machine. As long as Job says the right prayers, does the right sacrifices, says the right things, then God is expected to bless him. Following God was not a relationship, like with a fellow loved one, but was a formula. A good God, plus doing good works, equals a good life. As long as he did his part, God was expected and is supposed to do his part, and make him happy and fill his pockets. But it was all about Job. God became a means to an end. Someone like Job would be using God to get the things he really wants, and not God himself. This is clear in chapter 1. Job doesn't cry out to God for help. He tries to appease God by blessing his name. In chapter 2, his wife says he should curse God and die, which again implies it's all based on works. If you do something bad like cursing, you will get bad back from God. But Job doesn't do that, even though he feels it. Instead, he is trying to appease God somehow for the time being by saying good things and not cursing God. With this mindset, it seems as though as if he thinks he can earn God's favor again and get back his old life. 
which is why he won't openly say what he feels in his heart. But after seven days and trying to deal with his circumstances while not cursing God and still trying to show his goodness, Job finally starts to admit what he feels. He gives up and quite frankly says, the formula is not working. It's broken. I'm doing the right things, but the divine genie is not giving me what I deserve for persevering. So just let me die. Now, I'm not saying all of Job's lamenting was not crying out to God. After this initial response, he definitely begins to cry out to him. But we are looking at how he initially handles the situation, as that will reflect what he thinks is the best way to handle the turmoil. Once that doesn't work, then we see he begins to look elsewhere and cry out to God for help and answers. However, the point here is he initially doesn't do that, which I will argue in a bit is what God was trying to get at. Now, if you need any more convincing, look at how Job's friends treat the situation. They tell him over and over he did something wrong and he needs to repent. A good God plus bad works equals a bad life. Job did something wrong and he needs to fix it so he can earn God's blessings again. God will even bless him with riches if he does and says the right things, which is very similar to the prosperity gospel. So the important thing to remember about this is people tend to hang out with other like-minded people. Your close friends are usually those who you agree with most. And in ancient cultures, this was even more likely with much more racism and class segregation. Those who came to see Job are his closest friends. Now, are you going to suggest that Job didn't think at all like them before this happened? We tend to draw closer to the people we think more like. And so Job's friends are telling him the core doctrine of their shared beliefs. You obviously must have messed up, Job, or this wouldn't have happened. You must have said the wrong things or acted wrong, and this is why the divine vending machine has spit back at you. Job had the same idea in his mind, but the opposite look, since he claims he should have earned the good life. Look at Job's final confession, which resonates through the rest of his lamenting. In chapter 29, Job lists all his good works. I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help them. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and so on and so on. Then in chapter 31, he denies having done anything wrong. In both of these chapters, he points out he is blameless in both areas. He never coveted another woman, harmed servants, or forsook the less fortunate. He talks about his morality, sexual purity, generosity, benevolence, truthfulness, etc. He abstained from all sins such as lust, greed, envy, deceit, vengeance, and violence. Job was a blameless man, and he had the list to prove it. And that is exactly the problem. Nothing in his list mentions faith in God or trust in Him. Nowhere does he say he trusts in God's control, but he clearly shows he has faith in his own works, which should have delivered him. His work should have been his ticket to why he deserved the good life. He doesn't even hint to the possibility of some imperfection or that he didn't do what was needed to earn the good life. In other words, Job's report was accurate, but it reflected a mindset of justification by works. A good God plus good works should guarantee a good life. If anybody could have boasted in the law, it was Job. His criteria for righteousness was entirely self-made. He had become his own God and thought he was earning all that he had. Job had this warped view of God, which was, as long as Job played by the rules, God was expected to bless him. It wasn't about a relationship with God, but was about Job's works and using that to get God to give Job what he really wanted. Job was not following God, but his own moral deeds. That is what he thought was blessing him, not God. 
Job was lost in moralism, the idea that one can earn their way into God's grace and blessings through moral deeds. Second point, God had a good reason to allow what happened to Job. In Job chapter 1, Satan comes before God, and God addresses him. Now we need to remember, before we read on, that this is God we're talking about. The Old and New Testament clearly shows that God is omniscient. So as Psalms 139 verse 4 says, Even before a word is spoken, God knows it. So God knows exactly what Satan's reply will be if he brings up Job. He knows already that if he mentions Job, Satan will want to go after him. So starting in verse 8, we read, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now perhaps I missed it, but where did God make a bet with Satan that Job would curse him if Satan was allowed to take away his wealth and family? In fact, we see the opposite. Verse 8, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? He is a righteous man. Verse 9 to 11, Satan replies, He only loves you because you bless him. Let me take it away and he won't anymore. Verse 12, God replies, Go and do it. There is no mentioning that God disagreed with Satan, and God totally preempted him and gave Job over to him. So what is going on here? In the book of Judges, there is a constant cycle going on. God's people rebel against him, and they chase after other gods. So God gives them over to other nations. The Israelites realize the turmoil it has brought them, and they cry out to God. Then God rescues them by sending a judge. This cycle goes on several times over hundreds of years. And one of the things the book is teaching us is when we decide to stop walking with God, when we decide we'd rather worship other things, God gives us over to them and stops walking with us. Because, quite frankly, we are choosing not to be with him. If we were to go to the extreme and downright reject him completely, he would let us go to chase after what we want. Paul says it like this in 2 Thessalonians 2, Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The Bible clearly teaches if we reject God, he will let us reject him and give us over to someone else. Following God is about a relationship, and if we outright reject that relationship, God lets us go. What happens in Judges is not to that extreme, though, because the Israelites realize their error and they come back to God. They don't completely reject Him. They just fall away from Him for a time. They don't reject Him like some non-Christians do. So God didn't send them a delusion to believe, but lets the evil happen to them that they were chasing after, so that they realize their error and come back to Him. Hebrews 12.6 and Proverbs 12.3 says God disciplines those who he loves like a father corrects his child. To those who want nothing to do with God, he gives them the delusion they want, so they can go their own way. But to those who want to follow God, but have lost their way, God will allow suffering to hit us, so that we will learn from it and come back to God. That is exactly what we see taking place in Job, with this conversation between Satan and God. God is speaking of Job and calls him my servant. 
So although Job was clearly using God to get the things he wanted and not seeking God just to be with him, God still had not given up on him, like he never gives up on us. But Job had lost his way. He had fallen off the right path from which he had started and began chasing after wrong desires. But unlike the Israelites in the book of Judges, Job fell away from God in the opposite way. What we traditionally think of what it means to rebel against God is to be like the prodigal son in Luke 15. You leave God and you go out into the world. You drink, you gamble, you party, you spend all your money on prostitutes. That is what every red-blooded American knows is what it means to rebel against God. That is what it means to be the opposite of a moralist, and what we will define here for our purposes as a hedonist. But what Jesus taught was that even though that is bad, there is a far more detrimental way to rebel against God, and that was to become a moralist. Jesus points out in the parable of the prodigal son, when he, the younger son, realizes the error of his ways and comes home, the father throws a celebration, but this upsets the older son. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. See, what Jesus is saying is it is not the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the prodigal sons. They are both prodigal in completely opposite ways. The younger son rebels against God by going out to live the life of the rebellious hedonist. But the older rebels as a moralist. He doesn't go into the house to be with the father, but goes out, not into the world, but into the field of his own works. He goes to where he has built his identity, which is what he thinks he has done for God. When the father comes out to him, the only thing the older son can say is, Look at all I've done for you, and you never give me anything for it. Why won't you realize how good I am and how much I should have earned? Why don't you reward me for what I've done? See, it's all about him. He is using God to get the things he really wants, not using the things he has to love God. The older brother has rebelled against God and has gone out from him to be about his works and what he thinks he has earned through them. But like the younger brother, it is all about him, just in a different and more destructive way. Because the younger son realized his error. He came back. But the story ends in verse 32 open-ended. We don't know if the older brother came back in or not, because it is harder for a moralist to realize they are prodigal than it is for a hedonist. Because the moralist looks at his works and says, Look at all I did for God. God owes me now. I've not got out from him like those sinners. I've earned it. And when you have that mentality, it is extremely hard to see yourself, just as lost as a younger son. C.S. Lewis once said, Prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avarious, the self-righteous, are in that danger. The ones who don't see themselves as lost, but believe they have earned grace and blessings, are in far more danger of being lost in themselves. And we have seen that Job had that exact same mentality. It is not about God, but using God to get the things he wants. He has turned to himself and his works. I earned all this because I did the right prayers. I lived the right life. 
It was all done because I worked the system perfectly. And God says, no, you haven't. You've left me. You have started chasing after self-fulfilling desires. And I will give you over to the father of greed, whom you truly follow. God gave Job over to Satan to get him to realize he was lost in himself, in his own righteousness, and not in God's righteousness and love. He became a moralist and was just as prodigal as a hedonist. Third point. This book has a deep and important warning for Christians. As we can see from the story of the prodigal sons, and from the whole gospel in general, when Jesus came, he didn't come to convict hedonists and praise moralists. He came to convict both sides. The way the world looks at the Bible is that moralism is what God wants, and hedonism is what God hates. So get on the moralist side and you'll make God happy. But Jesus said this is wrong. He said both sides are wrong. Both sides are prodigal and lost in pride, just in different ways, and both sides need to come to repentance. But instead we have this divide. The hedonists say the moralists are the trouble with the world today, and the moralists say the hedonists are the trouble with the world today. And Jesus says, you are both the trouble with the world today. But one of the interesting things is if you read through the Gospels, is that Jesus spent more time with the people the moralists of his day hated he spent more time teaching the underprivileged, the tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. And when he encountered moralists, like the Pharisees, his words were hardly kind. In fact, one can say that Jesus had a harsher message for those lost in moralism than those lost in hedonism. Jesus was constantly calling them out and pointing out how they may be clean on the outside. They're destroying themselves on the inside. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What Jesus is saying is that although the moralists may appear to be following God, they're really rejecting Him and assuming their moral deeds will save them, that they can earn God's grace and blessings because they worked for it. But that very attitude means you are living for yourself, just like one in hedonism. Instead of living to please the lower desires, the moralist lives to please his desire to earn something and be a self-made person. He has built himself up and now God owes him. And this is far more dangerous for our psyche than living in hedonism. When someone lost in the world hits rock bottom, they can come to realize they need Jesus because they are clearly doing things which have distanced them from God, like the Israelites did throughout Judges. But a moralist fills himself constantly with self-righteousness and the idea that he is really doing God's work. Instead of the moralist realizing he needs Jesus, he is lost in his field of works and is constantly comparing himself to others. The mentality goes like this. God needs to help those evil sinners out there in the world. This world would be better off if more people were like me. Moralists don't think they need grace or Jesus to rescue them. Clearly, they assume, they are already doing God's work. They can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and better themselves. Moralism can easily get lost in this cycle of pride, where no matter what happens, it's all about you. You messed up, now you do the work to fix it. But it is never about Jesus. It is never about His grace and knowing that that is why we are saved. It is not because of what we have done, 
But what Jesus has done for us, and although moralism can manifest itself in non-Christians who claim to be good without God, if we Christians are honest, we need to admit that we fall into this daily. We Christians claim to follow Jesus and have been saved by grace, but it is so easy to lose sight of that and think we've earned it. It is so easy to compare ourselves to hedonists and look down on them. The mentality goes like this. The problem with the world is all that sin out there. Those hedonists need to fix themselves and start living decent lives. If they were more like us, they would be better off. That is why Jesus loves us and hates them. But see, by thinking this, we have fallen prey to pride and self-worth and think it is all about us. It is so easy to fall into this mentality and think God loves us more because we act better than those hedonists out there. Why would he prefer them to us? But what the book of Job is warning us is that is completely false. God is no respecter of persons. And in doing this, we are just as lost to those people we say we are better than. But now we can't see it because we compare ourselves to hedonists and say, well, I'm better off than them, so I'm safe. But in actuality, we are lost in pride and self-worth, but are unable to notice it. It is so easy to switch our focus away from Christ and to the works we do. This is why moralism is far more dangerous than hedonism. If you compare judges to Job, all the Israelites needed was to be captured by another nation. But for the moralist, Job, for God to wake him up, look at what God has to allow to get him to realize he is lost. He loses everything, deals with bickering from friends, and then God has to come himself to wake him up. Moralism is such a poison that God has to go to unbelievable lengths to save Job from it. It is far more destructive for the soul than hedonism could ever be. This is why some who were lost in moralism were so far gone that Jesus didn't even try to win them over. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Some were so lost in their own pride and their moral record that Jesus didn't even try. They were too self-absorbed, too focused on how good they thought they were. So what Job shows us is if we fall into moralism, it is actually taking us further from God than we could ever suspect. Job is a warning to Christians that although we may think we are doing the will of God and are far better than hedonists, if we fall into the moralist attitude, we are actually lost in pride and find it harder to realize it. C.S. Lewis said, The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing, of patronizing and spoiling sport, and backbiting, the pleasure of power, of hatred. For these are two things inside of me, competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. This is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. It is far easier to see yourself as a sinner who needs grace and hedonism than it is in moralism. And Job is there to warn us of that. Moralists need grace just as much as hedonists do. They need to realize they are prideful fools who look down on others and worship themselves. But for Christians, those who truly want to seek God and not absolute moralism, we can rest on the assurance that if we are lost and need to be put back on the right path, God will show up in our lives and do whatever it takes to get us there. God disciplines 
those who he loves like a father disciplines a child. Throughout the rest of Job, his friends try to figure out what he has done to deserve punishment. God has to be punishing Job because of some specific sin. Job keeps claiming he has done nothing wrong, and God shouldn't have let this happen. Then at the end, God shows up and says in so many words, Job, who are you, and who am I? Job, look at all I've done and still do. I am all-powerful. I am all-knowing. Who am I? God goes through a long list, showing his greatness, all in an effort to get Job to ponder the question, Who is God, and who is he? In chapter 40, Job responds and says in so many words, Look, I'm sorry, I never should have accused you of doing wrong. I won't do it anymore. But God keeps going. Why? Because Job still doesn't get it. God was not upset about the action of accusing God, but the motive behind it. Just like God doesn't only want good actions, but also right motives behind them to carry out our good actions. God is trying to get Job to think about the differences between who he is and who God is, and in doing so, trying to get him to realize something that is taught throughout Scripture, which is, No, Job, you still don't get it. It is not about what you have done or can do. You can't appease me with your works. They are nothing but filthy rags. I am not a divine genie. I don't serve you for appeasing me with your works and sacrifices. I give and I take. Nothing you have ever done will ever earn that or force me to bend to your works. I create beauty and wonder through my wisdom and power, and you have done nothing to create any of this. You are only here because I sustain and love you. You have done nothing to earn this. This is all because of my love. Now realize who I truly am and stop using me as a means to an end. See me for who I am and not what you think you can get out of me. God wants Job to realize he is personal. He is active. He is not some robotic genie that is to be used to get what we want out of life. He wants to be loved as he loves us. And finally, in chapter 42, Job gets it. He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Job says flat out, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job finally realizes it was God who blessed him out of love, and not because Job had earned it. Up until this point, Job had only heard of God, but now he sees God, and sees he is not a thing to be used, but is a personal being, who does things out of love, and one should not treat God like a divine vending machine, but realize who he is. He is a being of love and personality, who knows what is best for us, and will do whatever it takes to get us there. And we see that moralism is so dangerous for us that God will go to a great depth to rescue us from it. The important thing to remember here is no one was right but God. Job was lost in his own moralism and didn't think God had any grounds to allow what happened. Job's friends thought he was serving out punishment because of some particular sin, and if he repented, that would appease God and he would get everything back. Even Satan was wrong here. Satan thought that Job had never loved God and built his identity on his wealth and his health. And if he could take that away, he would reveal Job's true colors. But what God knew was that Job didn't build his true identity on those things. He had only lost his way and began to focus on how he thought he was able to obtain those things. It isn't until Job realizes that his formula didn't work, that he didn't want to live anymore. 
Job had turned to his own moral goodness, and by God allowing his things to be taken that Job thought he had earned from his good works, God could use that to wake him up. This is something we need to remember here. The whole time, God was still in control. He only permitted Satan to go so far, and he kept him on a tight leash. As Tim Keller says, God only gave Satan enough rope to hang himself. Satan wanted to destroy Job, but God used it to benefit Job. Satan thought Job worshipped his possessions, but God knew that Job, his servant, had lost his way, and that he would use this to bring Job back to himself and prevent him from being lost in his own pride and moralism. So no matter what we may face, the book of Job reminds us that God is still in control and has never forsaken us, but as always, has a bigger and grander picture in mind. God knows exactly what matters and is willing to go to extreme depth to bring it out for our benefit and for the benefit of those around us. See, it's not always about us. Don't go away with the idea here that suffering you may face is all about you. God will use your experiences to help others as well. Or more importantly, don't think this is how God will always respond to moralism. If you look at Job with a new formula in mind, that a good God plus moralism equals Job's situation of pain and suffering, then you are falling into the opposite picture than its intent. As it shows, God is not a formula that can be tricked to get good things and stay away from bad times. God knows each person is uniquely different and has a uniquely different life, so the trials we face will not always be the same or for the same reasons. But look at how Job ends and how it benefits others. God uses Job for the sake of his friends as well. He turns to them and says they have not spoken what is right about him. But he offers grace. He says for Job to pray for them and help them atone. So obviously from this text, we need to quickly point out that doing good things, like sacrificing to God to atone, is not bad. But what is in question is the motive behind our good actions. God obviously shows here it is good to do good things, like repent and atone. But also the point is, it is equally important to have the right motive behind them to carry out our good actions. So are we doing the good, praying and lifting up sacrifices to appease God in an attempt to earn his favor? Or are we doing these good things to seek repentance and get closer to God? And this is what God wants from us. Not a list of works we do to try to earn God's favor and blessing, but God working with us, like how God was working with Job here, in many different ways, to bring forgiveness and restoration to this world. It's good. It's a wonderful thing. No matter how filthy something gets, you can always clean it right up. There were so many. I just gave them all what they wanted. Yeah. But since when does anyone have a clue about what they want? So do I do? Parting your soup is not a miracle, Bruce. It's a magic trick. A single mom who's working two jobs and still finds time to take her kid to soccer practice, that's a miracle. A teenager who says no to drugs and yes to an education, that's a miracle. People want me to do everything for them. What they don't realize is they have the power. You want to see a miracle, son? Be the miracle. See, God wants to work through us to change this world, not have us work to earn his favor for our selfish gain. God doesn't want our works, he wants us, and then wants to work together with us. God uses suffering for the redemption of them all. So when we find ourselves in times of trials and suffering, we can rest on the fact that God is still in control. 
he sees the bigger picture and he is going to bring the good out of this, and not just for ourselves, but for others as well. The story ends with God restoring everything back to Job and more, but something is different now. It says in verse 15 that Job had daughters and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. In that ancient culture, this would have been considered a cultural sin. You did not treat women as you did men. They were considered lesser and not worthy of an inheritance. But Job seems to have a different picture in mind. Instead of caring about what the so-called rules may be, he cares about what is right. Is it right to treat women as inferior? Job's answer would have been no, despite what that culture told him was right. The book closes and Job gets it. It is not about following rules to be good. It is about doing the right things, even if it goes against the so-called rules. It is not about rules, but doing the right thing and letting the rules follow from that. To those in his culture, Job is breaking a rule here that would have been like sin for them. But Job doesn't seem to care. He now knows following rules, or works, will not save or bless him. All he has is by the grace of God. So he can focus on doing what is right instead of worrying if his works will doom or bless him. It is about relationships, not rules. It is about love, not trying to earn acceptance from God or the people in his culture. So the question we Christians can ask ourselves is what rules has our society set up that we think we need to follow but is actually going against the truth of the gospel? Are we following rules to get closer to God or are we following rules to get what we want? Our society says we Christians should not associate with the gay and lesbian community because they are sinful and need to change before God will accept them. But is that what is truly the right thing to do? Should we not display Christ's love for all, no matter how terrible we think their sin is? Instead of shunning those who some may see as evil sinners, why don't we realize they need Christ just as much as we do? And perhaps we are not so much different than we think. When we deal with angry skeptics who rudely attack us in Christianity, perhaps we need to realize they are not the enemy, but fellow sinners who need grace just as much as we do. Now I'm not saying we should be doormats and stand down, but perhaps instead of trying to humiliate them for our own benefit, we should see them as those who are not too different from ourselves and pray for them instead of despising them. If we can follow Job's example, we should let love lead us and think of what the right thing to do is instead of letting the so-called rules tell us what the right thing is. We should think of how we can become more Christ-like instead of moralistic. The benefit for us that Job did not have is he could not see the depth of God's love like we can today. Job didn't know what God was going to do to show his unquenchable love for us, but we can because we can look back to the cross. God left his throne in heaven when he didn't need to and came to earth to live as a poor Jewish carpenter and died the painful death of a criminal, all so he could rescue us from our sin and lead us home. When we were so lost in our sin that we couldn't tell our right from our left, God came and took the penalty we deserve. Job, in his suffering, didn't think God knew what he was going through. But if he could only get a glimpse of what we can see, that God cares so much that he came and suffered for us. God came and suffered and felt the pain and agony of suffering a human death when he didn't have to, and the only motivation was love. So although in times of trouble, we may not know why we suffer, we can look to Christ and know the reason can't be because he doesn't love us. Otherwise, why would he come and suffer for us? Why would he come and give up his throne so he can partake in the worst kind of suffering we could ever imagine? There is no greater love than that in the whole universe, and it is freely given to us, no matter how lost you think you are. The love of God knows no bounds, and it is there to rescue us all, hedonists and moralists. 
In Him, we are free from our sins and our good deeds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.